You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. And so if you have a copy of God's Word this morning, let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3 and verse 16. John chapter 3 and verse 16, and as I have Reminded you each and every week, the explicit purpose of John's gospel is this. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's the purpose of His gospel and it is the burden on my heart And hopefully the burden on every heart of every believer in this room this morning. That people would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. Be saved from their sin and have eternal life with God in heaven. This should be each and every one of our burden. And so if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've never been born again. Know this. That there are people and there is a pastor that has been praying that you would come to know Jesus this very morning. Because it is only through Christ that we know God. It is only through Christ that we have found forgiveness of our sins. It is only the death of Christ that satisfies a holy God for a sinful man in order that we might know Him. And to confess our faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way anyone can be saved. So we are praying for you, even this morning, that you would trust in Jesus Christ. Perhaps that call, the call to come and follow Jesus, can be most clearly heard in the one verse of Scripture that is more often than any other verse of Scripture used to proclaim such a message. And that is John 3.16. Sadly, the verse is often preached and taught and talked about in isolation from the rest of the chapter in which it resides. And therefore, I believe that it is robbed of so much of its power and its meaning and the weight that is mentioned here in John chapter 3. It is contained in the final part of this conversation with Nicodemus. If you have been here the last couple of weeks with us, you'll know this message to Nicodemus in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Nicodemus being confused by that, Jesus cites this story in the Old Testament of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Of course, the people of God having rebelled against him and because of their rebellion, God sending serpents to bite them and filled with this venom that was essentially their death sentence. There was only one way to be healed, the means by which God provided this serpent that Moses would lift up in the wilderness, and everyone looking to this serpent, believing God would be healed. And what Jesus says in the same way that the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That all who believe in Him, all who believe in Jesus, will be forgiven of their sin and receive eternal life. The question though remains in this conversation, what is that lifting up? What does it mean for Jesus to be lifted up, at least in, in his eyes, in the, mind, in the mind of this evangelist, John, who is writing to us, what does it mean for Jesus to be lifted up? Is it simply an exalting experience where Jesus is made much of and his importance and his, his supreme worth? Is that what we're describing? It's not that alone. In two passages in this gospel, 
namely chapter 3, verse 16, where we are, and the end of chapter 3, verses 31 through 36, it seems that John is, in hearing, in telling this story, he wants to reflect for a moment on what it really means to be born again. And there is, right here in the heart of this chapter, a call to come and follow Christ and to be saved. It's almost as if John has said, based on what you've heard, based on what I've been telling you, do you see what the means of salvation is? Do you see what God is saying to you? There's a connection between what Jesus told Nicodemus and what I'm now saying to you. And in the same way, John is saying to us this morning, how is it that we are to be saved? What is the means by which Jesus is Lifted up. What does Jesus tell us? Well, we see it here in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, the familiar text. This is what the Bible says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God. Lord, we pray this morning that You would help us in what is such a familiar verse to see the weight of this truth in its context. It's glorious. It is amazing that You would love sinners Sinners who by nature abide under your wrath and are deserving of your judgment and condemnation. That you would look upon us and that you would set your eternal love upon us. And that you would provide a way through the giving of your only Son. I pray this morning that that reality would stir the hearts of believers all across this room. That we would literally be so compelled by the love of Jesus Christ that we would go forth from this place as ambassadors of Jesus, calling people, pleading with people to come and be reconciled to God. That that message of reconciliation would be proclaimed loudly, not just from this pulpit, but in the hearts of every person this morning, such that if there is one here who's never trusted in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day That they're reconciled to You, God, our God and our King, that today they would be saved and that You would be glorified. We know that You have provided the life of Your only Son in order that this might be. So Holy Spirit, move hearts to believe this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The news that John gives in verse 16 is the best news in all the world. Amen? It is the best news in all the world. See this again in the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus has said, you must be born again. Born of God. This is what He tells Nicodemus. And the act 
that of being born again depends on God alone. God has to do something in the hearts of unbelievers in order to bring them to faith in Jesus. We must be regenerated because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We must be made alive. We must be raised with Christ. This is the act of God and it is a mystery of the Spirit, Jesus tells Nicodemus. Then... He places that against the backdrop of this Old Testament story. And in case you weren't here last week, there is this story of the people of God who have rebelled against God. They've sinned against the Holy God and God sends snakes. I I don't know about you, but that's probably the scariest judgment passage in all of the Bible for me. I hate snakes. But beyond that, they've all been bitten by snakes and there is this poisonous venom running through their veins and they have absolutely no hope of any anti-venom in the world. They are in the wilderness, been there for 40 years almost, and, and there's just a death sentence upon their life unless God does something. So God does something totally unique. He tells Moses, lift up this brass serpent. And Moses does that. And all the people, the people that look upon this serpent are healed from their the, the venom of the snakes. And, and of course, it has very little to do with the serpent itself, more of their act of faith and obedience and following the Lord. And they believe God and God forgives their sin and they're healed. They were called to believe. And John says, after telling telling this story of how Jesus tells Nicodemus this story, John says, do you see what I'm telling you? Do you understand what I'm telling you? This, that is the the snake-bitten people of God, this is the condition of the world. The story is only a shadow of, of what's happening among people and God's response to their condition. The sinfulness of Israel is only a reflection of the sinfulness of the whole world. Every man having turned away from God and done what is right in his own eyes. And in this condition, all of us have sin running through our veins and we are, des- we are deserving of God's judgment and His holy wrath against our sin. This is not a fairy tale. This is the reality of every single person that has and will ever live this side of eternity. And so Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And it is against this backdrop that John says, for God so loved the world. (laughs) The reality of the new birth is grounded in the reality of the lifting up of the sun. And the lifting up of the sun is grounded in what is clearly and more explicitly now His death on the cross. God gave His only Son and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The lifting up of the Son of God is the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. And the reason against the backdrop of wickedness and rebellion, the reason why Jesus went to the cross is because God so loved the world. The whole mission of Jesus is the direct consequence of God's unfailing love. And John makes that a matter of first importance. In fact, if you're at all familiar with the Greek language, the construction here behind the text, so loved that He gave His one and only Son, the construction here emphasizes the intensity of the love and the greatness of the gift. This is an unmatched act anywhere in human history. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Sadly, when we talk about love, we think about what it means to love and to be loved. Our culture and our understanding of love is so incredibly 
superficial. We, we generally define love in, in purely emotional terms. The, the way that we feel about something or someone generally dictates whether we love. But it is that superficial approach that actually led Jesus to give such strong words to Nicodemus, isn't it? Nicodemus came to Jesus seeking out something that he could do, not, not to realize that there's nothing that he could ultimately do. It was only something God can do. He was approaching this in purely human terms. And Jesus said, it's not about what you can do because you can't do anything about your condition, Nicodemus. You were born this way. You were born against God. And only God can do something to save you. You're, you're, you're a victim of the poison of sin. The only way that you can be saved is that God would turn His anger away from you and do something different to satisfy His own wrath for your sin. And He has done that. John says this is the exact thing that Christ has done in coming. God has satisfied His holy wrath by pouring it out on His one and only Son. But do you feel the tension here? The tension between what is what is what seems to be so loving and what seems to be so scandalous. How could a holy God who created the world love Sinners who've rebelled completely against Him. How is this even possible without somehow Him compromising His own holiness? It's a love that is not purely emotional. It is a love that requires a cost. Which is why God gave His only Son. This is an infinitely costly kind of love. I don't think there is anyone in this room who would give the life of their only son for someone who hated them, who had reviled them, who had persecuted them, who had committed murderous acts against them. And yet this is exactly what God did in sending His only Son. There was a cost. He gave, He gave, He gave. Even when we didn't give a rip about Him, He gave what was most precious to Him. The life of His only Son. This is in fact what Romans 5 says. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps... For a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you hear what God is saying to us this morning? Put against this backdrop of this Old Testament story, the need to be born again, and this conversation that we're seeing, here's the truth that rises to the top in this passage. God loved and gave His only Son to save a poisoned people. God gave, loved and gave His only Son to save a poisoned people. And this is, this is mind-blowing. The love of God for a disobedient world expressed by giving His perfectly obedient Son and the end purpose that we would not perish. Jesus perishes so that we don't perish. Jesus dies so that we don't die. And so that we might have eternal life with Him. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Most would agree that this has echoes of that story here. As Jesus is talking again to a very Jewish man about his Jewish scriptures, and he says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you remember Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2 when God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Do you remember the story? 
This is a scandalous story. Why would God do such a thing? If you've read this for the first time and you're reading the story, it makes no sense in the world until you get to the end of the story. And the, the great, the great heroic end to this story when there is this ram in the thicket and he's told, no, this is the sacrifice and his hand is stopped from killing his only son and, and in place of this only son is this ram. But do you hear the echo in John chapter 3? The echo in John chapter 3 is that story was insufficient ultimately to bring forgiveness. Abraham, your son could never be the sacrifice. So I'm going to provide for your son a substitute. The one who is there in the thicket. This ram. But that's only pointing. It's only pointing to the moment in all of human history that all of human history is waiting on and all of human history will look back on and all of eternity will sing about when I provided my only son, my only son as a substitute for you. So that in faith in Him, you might be forgiven of your sins and healed. That's the story. And Nicodemus hears. This is why John says in his letter to the church, first letter, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. First John 4.10 God loved and gave His only Son to save poisonous, poisonous people. And this is even more surprising when you consider the love of God as it's taught throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, this is the only place where we see God's love expressed for the cosmos, the world. Everywhere else, it would seem that His love is turned specifically toward those who are saved. And specifically among the Father and the Son, this triune God, the Holy Spirit, this this love that is perfect, that's the love that's taught. In fact, we're taught that the Father does in fact love the Son. This is my beloved Son. You can look at chapter 3, 10, 15, 17. If you want these verses, I'll give them to you afterwards. We can look at all kinds of places that describe the Father's love for the Son. In the Gospel of John, we see the reciprocated love of the Son for the Father. John chapter 14 and verse 31 is explicit and there are echoes all over the Gospel of Jesus' love for His heavenly Father. We are told that Jesus loves His own. Those whom the Father has given to Him. Chapter 11, verse 5, 13, verse 1, 33, 34. Chapter 14, it's all over the Gospel. Sometimes the Father's love for the disciples is mentioned. Sometimes. But most of the time that love is mediated through the Son. So we understand that the Father loves us in Christ. All over John's Gospel. True disciples, those who follow Jesus, are commanded to love Jesus. We must love Him. Chapter 14. Chapter 21. Again, all over John's Gospel. And the command, if we're true followers of Jesus, that we must love one another. Chapter 13, 15, 17, again, commanded by Jesus. John also emphasizes the fact that the world, fallen and rebellious human beings, do not and cannot love God. We see that in chapter 3. We see it again in chapter 5 and again in chapter 8. It's not part of our natural state. We are in our sinful condition. We do not and cannot ultimately love God. This is a response of the regenerate human heart. The one who's been born again to know and love God. Those who love God have been loved by God. And so this is an incredibly surprising response in John 3 and verse 16. But it's equally surprising when we think about our own lives, isn't it? It's easy to look at the person next to you or down the street from you or across the community from you or on the other side of the bars from you and to say, God could never love. But I promise you, if you look long enough 
and hard enough through a biblical lens, you will be forced to ask the question at some point in your life, how could God ever love me? And this is why this is so surprising. Because He has. How could God love me? All of the things in my life I've done, all of my rebellion against Him, all of my wrong choices, all of my sin, all of my love for things that displease Him. And yet, and yet, God so set His love upon me. This is an amazing thing that God would love me a sinner. In this text, we see three pictures of this love. So what, what I want to do this morning is I want to show you these three distinct pictures. The provision of God, the problem of sin, and the power of salvation. The, the provision of God, the problem of sin, the power of salvation. Here's my hope for you. You see these three pictures that you are so overwhelmed. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ, that you'll be so compelled by the love of Christ for you that today you would believe the gospel and be saved. It's my prayer for you. If you're here this morning, you're a Christian. My prayer for you is that you would be so compelled by the love of Christ this morning for you that you would not only rejoice and worship this this incredible God who has saved you, but that you would go and tell this news to everyone that you know. That you would not be able to sit silent on the gospel that you have heard and through which you've been saved. So, let's see these three pictures together. This God who's loved us and given Himself for us, a poisonous people, we see, number one, the provision of God. The provision of God. Verses 16 and 17. Here's what it says. God so loved the world. Again, an important word for God so loved the world. Connected to the text before it. What is it that is being lifted up? The picture of the cross. God giving His only Son. That He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Don't miss verse 17. Don't just take verse 16 and make it your life verse. Add to it verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Okay, so this begins, first thing you should notice and circle is the word God. This begins with God. Salvation is the work of God. It is not something that you can provide for yourself. It's not something that you can conjure up, that you can kind of, kind of work out in your life. Salvation is the work of God. We've already seen that in being born again. God is the one who initiates salvation. All of us as sinners are in need of rescue. And we did not launch the rescue mission. We were not seeking God. We weren't searching for Him. We weren't trying to be saved. We weren't trying to go to heaven. We wanted nothing more than to get away from Him and His authority and His, His, His creative and redemptive purpose in our life. And yet He came seeking us. He sent His Son. When there was no hope, when there was no salvation, Jesus came. Salvation is the work of God. It is His provision and it is a provision because he made something for us something that was needed that was necessary that we could not do ourselves he gave something that was of infinite priceless value and that is the blood the life of his only son this is emphasized here i think in the story of Abraham. Abraham could not make adequate provision for himself. He needed a substitute. And in the same way, we cannot make adequate substitute for ourselves. God must do it. The love of Abraham even for his son and the love of Isaac for his father was incomplete and imperfect. Fathers, there's not a father in this room and there's not a child in this room in which you will find perfect love. There's only one relationship, an eternal one. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son in which we find perfect love. God provided the life of the one whom He loved perfectly. What does it mean for God to provide His only Son? 
What is the provision that He made, that He gave? Well, nested in this story, and as we continue to read the book of John, we see what had taken place. In fact, in chapters 13 through 17, when the love of God for His people becomes so clear, this amazing picture of the love of God for chapter after chapter after chapter lands at the cross. A place no one ever expected it to land. When Jesus is taken to a Roman cross that He did not deserve for committing a crime that He did not commit, and innocence is put on trial, and yet He is declared guilty. He is declared guilty and He is taken to a cross to die the death of a sinner. Jesus dies. And yet it was My cross that He bore. It was My death to be died. It was My penalty to pay. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and it is My death that is deserved. We deserve the wages of sin is death. We deserve that death. And Christ went. But it's not just a story where Jesus died and so we get out of jail. What Jesus did is He went and He satisfied the requirement that was on our lives because of our sin. There is a requirement on our lives in order that we might go to heaven. That requirement can only be perfection and penalty erased. It's the only way that you and I can ever see God. We're sinners and there's a penalty of our sin. The penalty must be satisfied and then we must offer up a perfect sinlessness to a holy God in order to be made right before God. And I don't know if you've been keeping track of your life very much lately, but none of us are capable of that. This is something that is impossible. And yet, this is exactly what God did in sending Jesus. He died the death that we deserve, which is called a substitution, a penal substitution. He satisfied the penalty of our sin. And not only that, He he removed the, the, the guilt of our sin from us so that He might be able to clothe us in His righteousness and His perfect sinlessness might be offered to a holy God. And the requirement from us is to put our faith and trust in Him. All of our sins forgiven. As far as the east is from the west. And the purpose, God's purpose in sending His only Son, verse 17 says, was not to condemn us. It's not to condemn us, but to save us. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And you've got to get this. Believer, if you've not heard this, seen this, know this, if judged based upon your own merit and whatever you can provide God, there is nothing but condemnation. But if judged based on what God has provided, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Your sins are forgiven. They are not counted against you. There is no longer a penalty. You have no more sin guilt any longer. God has forgiven all of your sin and you are free in Christ. Not free to do what you wish, but free to remain in this world and in eternity glorifying God forever. And this is the provision of God. And God has done this because He loves us. You see, the kind of love that sells a cheap emotionalism says that God will look past your sin. It tries to instill in you some intrinsic worth that is savable. The Gospel's better than that. (laughs) The Gospel says God knows who you are and everything you've done and instead of judging you, He judges Christ in your place. So much better because it comes to terms with the reality of who you are. And it says, I'm going to provide a way anyway. And God has set His love upon you. And He's provided a way of salvation in Christ. This is His amazing love. The provision of God. So that's picture number one. I want you to see the second picture. 
Because if we just talk about God's love, then we've missed half the story. We need to see God's love within the context of the problem of sin. We need to see just who we really are. So verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Take that and set that aside for a moment. Okay, just set it aside. We're going to come right back to it in a moment. But look at the contrast. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus did not come into a spiritually or morally neutral world. He came into a helplessly lost and eternally broken world. He didn't come because something was missing in your life. He didn't come in order to be the poster boy of your social experiment. Jesus came because the world was hopelessly broken. Jesus came into an existential collapse. Everything that we are and everything that we ever hoped to be and everything that we were created to be was hopelessly fallen and broken and in need of rescue. This is our condition. Church family, we live with brokenness all around us. There is no answer in this world for all of that brokenness. Our relationships are are strained and we fight and war over politics and race and doctrine because we're fallen. Our marriages are many times strained and full of conflict because we're fallen. Your children don't obey you and your parenting is sometimes harsh. Because we're fallen. You don't always have the things that you seem to need and things don't always go your way, at least in terms of prosperity and happiness. We're anxious and we're worried because we're fallen. But what makes our condition so critical is not the fallenness that we experience in this life alone. What makes our condition so critical is because in our natural state, we are headed toward an eternity in a place called hell. And Jesus says, it is not that you will one day be condemned. He says that you and I are condemned already. It is not some distant thing that we're waiting to come to pass. It's not something that will ultimately be sealed one day by our death. It's something we're already living in now. Our present experience is separation from God. And most frightening of all, we are dark, walking around in the dark, blind to our own condition. Just listen to the text. There's two reasons, two progressive reasons why we're condemned. He says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's the condition of your life apart from Jesus. You're already condemned. Two reasons. Because you've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That would be reason number one. Because of your rejection of Jesus. And then he says, this is the judgment. He says that light, the light has come into the world. Namely, Jesus has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light. In other words, we wanted everything but God. We wanted everything but God's provision. And why is that? Because we didn't want to do what he commands. He says because their works 
were evil. Well, of course. Verse 20 says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Of course that's true. If I love darkness, if I love sinfulness, why would I want to be under the light of God's holiness? This is what I mean by a poisoned people. We are drawing on this picture of the snake. We're drowning in this venom. And then you put that into the context of Nicodemus coming to Jesus. And he's asking these questions, profound spiritual questions. And yet, when does he come? At night. He doesn't even realize his own spiritual darkness. You see, the problem of sin is the rejection of God and ultimately the rejection of His law. It is to look at God and say, I am not willing to obey you because my way is better. I'm not going to follow your word and I'm not going to submit my life to a Lord, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore I am not willing to receive your son's life in place of my sin because I don't see it as sinful. Oh, I see it as pleasurable. And yet God, the Creator of heaven and earth, declares it to be sin. And in that context, we are facing a bleak picture. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, He says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. This is why I love that that phrase is there at the beginning. Because what John is saying is not believing and not obeying and all of these things is your natural state. But there is still hope for you if you would believe the gospel. This is why this is so loving to know the condition that we're in. Because to realize just how evil and wicked we are, and yet to know just how loving God is, is an amazing picture. It's grace. It's not anything I deserve, but what God has done for me. God justifies condemned sinners by condemning His Son in our place. So that we might be forgiven And saved. Saved from the hell that we rightly deserve. It's picture number two. So we see, number one, the provision of God. And number two, the problem of our sin. But notice, number three, the power of salvation. Verse 21. But whoever does does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's kind of a curious statement. It's interesting. Because what he's said so far is he who believes. But now he's saying whoever does what is true, he moves to this works argument. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amazing contrast here. The one who does evil abides in the dark, doesn't come to the light because he doesn't want his works to be seen. He doesn't want his wickedness exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it's going to be clearly seen. He wants his works to be seen so that what's seen can be known to have been carried out in God. That's the operative two words. That's the difference maker between those who dwell in darkness and those who dwell in light. Their works have been carried out in God. And the idea here, again, born again of God, in God. This is a picture of God doing something in the life of a person. And what's happened when a person becomes born again is they're called out of the darkness into the marvelous light. So that they no longer love the works of darkness, but rather hate them and now love the works of light. Those things that would bring glory and honor to God. And when the person gets saved, their whole life is transformed. God changes their life. It's the work of God in the heart and life of a sinner. This is the new birth once again. What's new? Well, John says a couple of things. One, he says he does what is true. 
By implication, that means he loves what is true. You do what you love. He begins to love the truth of God's word, the truth of God's character. He begins to love holiness. He begins to love worship. He begins to love God's kingdom and his will and his mission. God is hallowed and treasured in the hearts of the people who are born again. So he does what is true. So whoever does what is true, then there is this private life that he's come to do and love that becomes public. He comes to the light. So what is true in the heart and what is true in the private life is also true in the public life. Everything that is that is known and changed about him by God is now seen in the light. So that his works may be clearly seen. The introduction of a third party. In other words, that people might see his good works and God might be glorified. That's what changes about a believer. That's what's different about the one who's been born again. He's one who wants to do what is right. Do what is true. What is honoring to the Lord. Both in his private life and in his public life. Such that all of those that see him might know that God did that in him. That God did that in her. And that's what it means to be born again. And so this transformation is built again on God's love. This is the love of God to reconcile a sinner to himself and then to restore everything in the life of the sinner that was condemned. And the wreck of our lives. <laughs> now, I don't know what your life looks like. I can only speak about my life. But I have a way of making my life into a big giant mess. I mean, I mean a mess. I do things in my life, have done things in my life that, that by all human terms should never be recoverable. And I've got a suspicion that the same is true about you. Because the reality is the same is true about all of us. We are a wreck without Christ. And yet, because of His love, He changes us. He rescues us. How is that done? You would think that this is where John would say, do some good things. But he doesn't. It's a picture of faith over and over and over again. These things are written that you might believe. Verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Verse 18 again, whoever does not believe is condemned. It's a difference between those who have faith and those who don't. Those who believe God and it's accounted to them for righteousness and those who don't believe and they're condemned forever. This is the great difference maker in our lives. Now, that certainly speaks to the measure of a changed life, whether our life is producing works. But at the end of the day, the one who runs to the light, the one who runs to righteousness has been born of God. So can I ask you this morning? Have you been born of God? Or are you dwelling in darkness? Do you have evil deeds that compel you in love for your darkness to remain there? Or does the love of Christ compel you to come out of the darkness into the light of God's truth? Have you been changed and transformed by His love? This is what Paul meant when he said the love of Christ compels me because I judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. That those who live should no longer live for, him, for themselves, but for the one who died for them. This is, this is the Christian life. The cross compels us. Jesus compels us to be transformed. And so, three pictures that show us. God loved and gave His only Son in order to save a poisoned people. And so, have you been saved? Have you ever been born again? With every head bowed, every eye closed, all across this room. I want to give you the opportunity this morning to come and trust in Christ. Musicians are going to come and we're going to sing. But right now, the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart today. You've heard His voice. You've heard His Word. His Word is true. 
This morning, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, convicting you of your sin and your need for a Savior. And today, you need to put your faith in Christ. You're condemned already in your current state, but Jesus has offered you eternal life and forgiveness of your sins today if you trust Him, wherever you are. And so in just a few moments, we're going to stand. This altar is going to be open. We're going to be singing. Christians are going to be rejoicing in what God has done in this gospel, this amazing grace. But right where you're standing, you need to respond. You need to surrender your life. You might have a conversation there with the Lord. Jesus, I I know I'm condemned. I know my own darkness. I know my sin. And Jesus, I deserve death and an eternal hell. I need your rescue. Would you save me today? Right there where you're seated, the Bible tells us that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you would cry out to God for mercy right now today. Jesus, would you save me? Today, I I, want to give you my life. I want to be changed. I need your forgiveness. I trust God in your provision, what you've given for me on the cross today. I want to be a Christ follower. Right where you're seated. Would you cry out to the Lord? In just a few moments, we're going to stand. And this altar is going to be open. And we want to encourage you this morning. That's the desire of your heart. Today, you want to be born again. Would you come out of the place where you're standing? Would you come to this altar? Say, Pastor, today I, I gave my life to Jesus. I, I want to follow Jesus. Will you help me? I, I'll help you. Maybe you're still kind of work through that. Trying to figure out what this looks like in a life of following Jesus. We want to help you because this is... This is a matter of life and death, eternity, today. And we want you to know Him and to be saved forever. So in just a few moments, when we stand, you step out of that place and you come to this altar. Maybe there's other decisions that need to be made in this room. Right where you are. We want you to come today and make those decisions. Be obedient to the Lord right where you are. Let's stand together all across the room. I'm going to pray and this altar is open. You come this morning. Lord Jesus... We pray that that you would help us today to be obedient to your call in our lives, to obey the gospel, to be saved, to join this church, to turn from our sin, whatever it is that you're placing upon our hearts. Today we give you our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.